0: In Seattle this morning right I thought we were all done with rain but here we go so it's good to have you here this morning and uh, I just want to take a minute and thank the worship team this is our first Sunday without Morgan here and she is excitedly joining Josh in his ministry and I know God is going to be faithful to us so I just want to take a minute and say thank you to them and uh, thank you yes As Teresa uh, Teresa mentioned, we have a budget preview meeting today. So this is a meeting from 4 to 5, and of course, who would not want to spend a Sunday afternoon talking about money, right? But this is an important meeting because this is a chance for us to look at next year's finances and say, God, we want to be faithful in what you give us through the congregation, but we also want to have faith of what you can do. And so we're going to be sharing with you this morning the product of a lot of discussion, a lot of prayer of what the elders and the directional team and the pastors and ministry directors feel like is the next direction for us. We have some significant changes to our budget, and so we would love to have you come. Uh, Whatever you can do to be here, this uh, this is really an important moment because this is one of the things that our congregation actually votes on on uh, June 25th. We're going to come together and say, this is what we as a congregation want to see God do this next year. So I hope you'll come, be a part of this refining process, and uh, we'll see what God will do for us. Today we are in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, and I want to just pause for a moment before we get into this and remind us of where we have been in 1 John. So you'll remember that in 1 John, he's been uh, teaching us about what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, he says, here's what the real deal disciple looks like. This is what is an authentic 24 karat, bona fide believer. And that's important to him because in his generation, there were people coming into the church seeking to deceive the Christians about what it meant to walk with Jesus. So he spent quite a bit of time in these first couple of chapters. And he says, you can know what the genuine article is uh, because of several things. First of all, we walk in the light and we don't walk in darkness. So, in other words, he's saying there are no hidden, deep, dark, secret closets in our lives that we have never exposed to Jesus, that we are unwilling to expose to him. He says uh, there's no unyielding dark spots in our character or our practices. Uh, We don't have a habitual uh, shading of the truth in our actions and words. So, we live in the light rather than in the darkness. He also tells us that uh, we're the real deal if we realize, yes, we are prone to sin. He says in chapter 1, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. We know that we have the sin nature. It's still very easy to sin. But he also says the real deal is a person who who, uh, refuses to practice ongoing habitual sin. We continually confess it to the Lord, to each other, and we're honest about where we, we are in our walk with Christ. So no ongoing habitual sins that we welcome and cling to and uh, desire. He says, thirdly, another mark of a real Christian, of a 24-carat Christian, is that we stick with Jesus. You remember we talked the last couple of weeks about abiding in him. And uh, it's the, the picture of staying after the, the movie theater to watch what's coming next. We stick around. We don't wander around the, after the world and other deceiving philosophies of life. We cling to him and we believe in him. He also said, you're a bona fide believer if we're obedient to what God has to say in his written word. Uh, We don't pursue lawlessness, that's rebellion to God's law. We pursue righteousness. Today, he comes to a very important distinction for us. So John is kind of like a seasoned Eagle Scout who's teaching the Cub Scouts how to tie their knots. He says, I've been doing this a long time. I've walked with Christ a long time. I want to help you as a follower of Jesus tie your knot tight. And so as he gets into this chapter, he says, here are the gauges. We've looked at four of them. This is the true north of genuine faith. This is where new life is. And then he adds the most important one of all. And that's in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I really hope you do, would you open them to 1 John 3? And we're looking at verses 11 through, uh, excuse me, 9 through 18. We're going to Backtrack a little bit on what Jared shared with us last week just to get the context. And then we're going to look at this last, most important gauge for determining our faith in Jesus Christ, that it's a real faith. So before we do that, let's take a minute and pray. Father God, as you've walked with me through this passage this week and you've offered me insights and thoughtfulness about what John is saying, I feel uh, stirred in my spirit, Father, that... This would be a passage we would not simply read or hear or think about today. God, I think you want to take this passage and drive it deep in our hearts, deep into where we make decisions about life and choices and how we deal with our emotions in the midst of life, with relationships of people at church or in the world, and and how you say, in those relationships, when you have frustrations and anger and difficulty and whatever it might be, these emotions, here's how you handle them, and here's what a follower of Jesus does with them. And, and so, Father, I feel like this is the nitty-gritty of, of life. I feel like it's really the heartbeat of First John. And so I pray this morning that, that you would speak to us uh, through your word. Father, it's living and active, and it's designed to embed itself in us. So, Teach us, we pray, help us to apply it in our lives, and not simply leave here saying, oh, that was good stuff, but leave here saying, I've got to do something with that good stuff. So, Father, we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So what is this final, most important characteristic that John lays out for us, and he says, this is what a true Christian is marked by. And in this passage, it is righteousness and love. That's the DNA of every Christian. And you see it in verses 9 and 10, which say, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. His DNA, his character abides in them, and he can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Last week, Jared did just a great job for us, helping us understand how to identify our spiritual ancestry. Who's our real daddy, was his phrase. And he reminded us that you can know your real daddy is God, the creator of all things, if we make a practice of doing what is right. That word practice literally means building something. So if you're building a life of righteousness, if you're crafting a life that pursues God's truth, if you're intentionally pursuing God, he says, you are In God's family, God is your daddy. But he also pointed out, we can also know our real daddy is Satan, the devil, if we make a practice of sinning, if we are building this life of rejection of God's truth, of pursuing our own interests, our own truth, our own self-pursuits. If we're pushing back against God's desires, resisting his will, seeking our own, he says you can know which family you're in. Now, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 6, and he agrees with this. Listen to his words. We'll put them up on the screen for you. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death into life. And notice this next part. And offer every part of yourself to him, as an instrument of righteousness. There's John's phrase, pursuing, practicing righteousness and love. He says, for sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. You're not under Moses' 600-plus commandments. You are under grace. So pursuing righteousness, which, by the way, I had a professor who said, here's a real simple definition of righteousness. Take the middle part out, and what you get is Rightness. You've been made right with God, you have a standing with God, and you are being made right with God in sanctification. There is a rightness to your life or a righteousness. So all of us need to ask the question, do I seek to do what is right, or do I simply do what is most pleasurable or convenient? Um, Do I try to follow God's commands, or do I just do what is most pleasurable? Am I eager to accept God's truth, or am I creating my own truth? What direction is my life going? I like what one commentator says about this. He says, a life which is bent towards sin, a life which is characterized by the rejection of God's word by refusing to seek after the holiness of God in Christ. This life is a life which bears the mark of the devil. So John says here, this author says, you can do what you are, but he also says that you do whose you are. Isn't that an interesting way of describing the walk with Satan you do what you are comes out of the heart but we also do whose we are so if you look back at verse 9 you see the evidence of this right he says genuine Christians literally have God's seed his sperma in them is the Greek word his DNA his character is implanted in us in the person of the Holy Spirit so that seed takes root and begins to grow. So it's kind of like this. I brought with me this morning a watermelon. I don't have a hammer, so you guys are in the safe zone right up here. But when you uh, have a watermelon, and some of you may remember uh, from your youth or a church picnic or a family gathering seed-spitting contest, you guys ever do that, right? Well my family certainly did, and I think 20 feet was the longest we ever went, and that was my brother. He had a lot of hot air. So. He's not watching this this morning, I don't think, so we're okay. But when you take <clears throat> a watermelon, and by the way, if you like watermelon, you're welcome to come up here afterwards and grab a piece, because I have another watermelon for the next service. <clears throat> and I'm not going to leave this one up here. But if you take a seed out of this, and by the way, it was interesting, I went to the store, you know, and, and I'm thinking, I've got to get a watermelon with seeds. I get to the display, and what do I see? <laughs> seedless watermelon. It's like, come on. But you know what? There's a seed right there. And you don't have to take that piece. My finger was stuck in it. But there's a seed. If I take this seed and put it into the ground, what am I going to get? Carrots, (laughs) right? No, of course not. You take that seed, and you put it in the ground, and what do you get? If I can get it out, pineapple. Right? I wouldn't mind that, actually. I do like pineapple. You don't get onions. What you get is a baby watermelon. Right? Lots of them. When I lived in Carlsbad, one of the seeds from a seed-spitting contest went outside our our, uh, fence. And there was a main street along that side of the fence. And months later, I was walking along the side of our house, and I noticed something growing. It was a watermelon plant. And they were like, they were a little smaller than this, but there were like six or seven watermelons. And I'm looking at those going, gosh, it actually grew. Isn't that fun? And then I thought, wait a second, it's outside my fence. Anybody can pick those. And my flesh got going, right? It's like, how am I going to protect those? Now, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail. But the point is, you plant a watermelon and you get a watermelon. When God puts his DNA in us, his seed, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit, his character. He says, if you're born of God, guess what? The character of God has to erupt in your life. It's irresistible. It's incontrovertible. It will happen because you've been born again. And this is John's point here in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, if you have been born of God, you have... God's character within you. And it's producing more of his character so that I almost this morning wrote on here the character of God. What is the character of God, by the way? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Yeah, we could go through that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So that as you and I look in the mirror of our lives, that is what we should see in our lives are those qualities in that fruit peter writes to us in second peter we'll put this up on the screen so you can take a look at it and it's so fascinating as you go through scripture you you see this picture of this transformation this migration and he writes in chapter one verses three and four jesus's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Your ears should be tingling right now. We get to participate in the divine nature, that seed that is planted in us that erupts through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and he says, having escaped From the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians this famous verse. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a? Right. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. Charles Spurgeon, the preacher of preachers, said it this way. We have our imperfections and infirmities over which we mourn. But no child of God can live in sin and love it. He hates it. He's like a sheep that may fall into the mire, but he will not wallow in it as the swine do. As soon as possible, he is up again and out of the mud and the filth. So, the moment we are regenerated in that new birth through faith and repentance, at that moment, we begin to to be changed in what we do and in what we feel and in what we say and in what we think and in whose we are, right? We're driven to do what is right and to love because God lives in us. So, are you and I a child of God? Now, if you ask anyone in our world today, the answer would be, of course, I am. Isn't everyone a child of God? Have you heard that? Everyone's a child of God. But that's just not true. What is true is that everyone is a creation of God. But to become a child of God requ- requires this Supernatural work of regeneration and of repentance and of renewal, being born again with God's DNA. So John wants to clearly start with us there, and he says the evidence of this DNA is that you have a changed life of obedience and you love people. That's when our relationship to our daddy is clearest, clearest in its expression. It's most discernible when we love people. So I want you to take just a minute. Look at the person left or right of you and say, I'm supposed to love you. (laughs) Didn't that feel good? Now you're looking at somebody, maybe you don't even know him, you're going, okay, what does that mean, right? God says we're supposed to love each other. The people in front of you, the people behind you, the people next to you. The church is supposed to love each other, and it's not supposed to stop there. It's supposed to flow over into the world so that the world will know we are his disciples because of love. This is such an important uh, thing for us because more and more today, Christians are known for who they are against rather than who they love, and I think John would just weep over that, and he would say, oh, folks, we've got to get this right, and by the way, this is why in Scripture you see time and again admonitions against the feelings of the flesh look at second corinthians 12:20 paul writes i fear that perhaps when i come to the church in corinth i may find you not as i wish and you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling jealousy anger hostility slander gossip conceit disorder he looks at the church and he says these are things that are present. They shouldn't be because you've been born of God. Paul writes in Galatians 5.13, something really powerful for us. He says, notice, you were called to freedom, brothers. Freedom from what? From death, from sin, from Satan, from despair. You've been called to freedom. But, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for, for the old person. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice this. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then interestingly, he goes right into, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like this. That list doesn't end there. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things persistently, habitually, unrepentantly will not inherit the kingdom of God. So a Christian's DNA will engage less and less in those behaviors. You will see them dropping by the wayside as you pursue righteousness and the will of God. And the hope is, right, that as we do these things, the world around us would get better. In fact, it would love us for it. But John says, don't count on it. In fact, look at the next point, verses 11 through 13. When we act in righteousness and love, the world's response to us might be surprising. John writes, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, from the very moment God created the world, from the moment he created in you new life, that you've heard this message. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain in our love for each other, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because, and listen to this, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That's borne out in Hebrews 11. We'll look at that in just a minute. Cain's deeds were evil. His brothers were righteous. And there's this comparison going on in his family. And so he reacts to that. And John says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Wouldn't you think that right behavior and love would receive the acclaim of all? Doesn't that make sense? Seem like that would be the case. You would think that caring for others and speaking up for the truth, having compassion toward people in need, living with integrity, being people who are sacrificing for the good of others, being individuals who have moral values, being people who generously give to struggling people, who lend a helping hand whenever it's needed, you would think that all of these would be applauded by all. But. That is not always the case. And it's not the case for one simple reason, and that is that right actions always put wrong choices in a bad light. Think about that for a minute. Right actions always put wrong choices in a bad light. So doing the right thing expresses a standard that decries wrong things. As people look at the right standard. Acting with purity exposes immorality. Being a man or woman of of, uh, integrity opposes lust and greed. Having moral values resists drunkenness. Uh, Speaking up for the truth, right? In our culture today, exposes evil and the lies. And and this is the stuff that Satan lives for and, and longs for, are the evil things in his world that he controls. And so those living in the darkness aren't happy about being exposed to the light. And folks, that was Cain's problem. Notice how John refers to him. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Genesis 4. You can take a look in your Bibles if you'd like to. I'm going to put on the screen the message translation of that. But I want to revisit that for just a minute. Because when John uses this analogy, it helps us understand how to live, but it also helps us understand how to deal with the flesh within us, the feelings within us that pop up when people are doing things that we don't like. So listen to the message of Genesis 4. Adam slept with Eve, his wife. She conceived and had Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man with God's help. Then she had another baby named Abel. Abel was a herdsman, Cain was a farmer. And time passed, and Cain brought an offering to God from the produce of his farm. Pineapples, watermelon, if you go to Israel, watermelon is one of the huge crops there, dates, all kinds of wonderful things that he had grown. He brings this to God. And Abel also brought an offering, but it was from the firstborn animals of his herd, choice cuts of meat. You almost have to ask, how did he know to do that? I mean, where did that come from? We'll see in a minute. It says, God liked Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering didn't get his approval. And Cain lost his temper and went into a sulk. Now, this might sound like an arbitrary standard by God, arbitrary action by God, but the context tells us that it was based on clear communication of what was right and wrong. God had already made that clear. It's not recorded for us, but the next statement reveals it. Notice, God spoke to Cain. Why this tantrum? Why the sulking? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Now, in the Hebrew, the word is, won't your face be lifted up? Won't you smile again? If you do the right thing, you're going to be happy, Cain. And if you don't do what is right, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce and master you. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. So here, at the very beginning of human history, we have the key to all human behavior laid out for us. I call it the Cain Principle. And it's simply... The fact that we have a choice to do what's right or to do what's wrong and a description of what will happen if we do what's wrong and if we do what's right. So you notice Cain hears God, but what does he do? He has words with his brother. They're out in the field. Cain came at Abel, his brother, and killed him. The Hebrew says he slit his throat. And God said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? Cain says, how should I know? Am I his babysitter? God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is calling to me from the ground. Cain, from now on you will get nothing but curses from this ground. You'll be driven from this ground that has opened his arms to receive the blood of your murdered brother. You'll farm this ground, but you'll no longer it'll no longer give you its best. You'll be a homeless wanderer on earth. So Cain's wrong choice produces excuses and curses. And he's driven from the face of God. And the DNA of sin kicks in. And the price is huge for him. So, folks, this wrestling match that Cain has going on in his spirit, in his emotions, it's experienced by all of us all over the world. We get upset at someone at work or school because their choice to cheat or lie Our choice to cheat or lie is put in a bad light by their righteous actions to tell the truth or not. We see this as whistleblowers step up in our culture to tell the truth. Here's what actually happened, and the reaction of our world to them. So, these nursed wounded feelings, these feelings that are angry at someone else for what was said or done, resentment, envy, frustration, we all have these struggles. And there's a progression in Cain's story that John wants us to understand, and we'll put the progression up on the screen for you here, but notice the very first thing that happens in his life. He makes a choice to bring his own goods to God, and he perceives an injustice to himself. You can almost hear Cain's thoughts. Why doesn't God like my sacrifice? I deserve better. This is wrong. And there are moments when we feel that way, right? Something happens, we feel like, that wasn't right. I deserve better. Step two, he becomes angry. He loses his temper, he throws a fit. He wants to be accepted based on the work of his hands, his corn, his wheat, his zucchini, lots of zucchini, apples and pears. He wants that to be acceptable to God. And when it's not, he nurses his wounded feelings. God is unjust. My brother's a goody two-shoes. There's nothing wrong with my gift. And it's at that point that God steps in. Now, he does that with us through the Holy Spirit, through our conscience, and through Scripture. With Cain, it was a direct approach. And he says to him simply, hey, if you do what is right. Cain, what's the right thing to do? It's interesting, when you go to the book of Leviticus, how many of you love studying Leviticus, right? It's one of those really challenging books. But in there, Moses writes, how do you approach a righteous God? And the answer is through the Levitical sacrificial system. So that the Jews were taught by Moses, here is how you bring the Lamb to God. you know what? It's the exact same choice cuts in Leviticus that it was in Genesis. God said the same thing consistently throughout history. Here's how you approach me. And so he says to me, hey, if you do what is right, come on, Cain, you know the right thing to do. I've been clear. Cain allowed his hurt feelings to take charge. Resentment. Envy. Frustration. They take control of his life. Sin leaps in, takes a grip of his heart and his actions. And it's it's what James tells us about in the New Testament. Notice this. This is a consistent message in progression. James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted. Oh, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, what he wants, his feelings. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's what happens in Cain's life. There's this brutal action of slitting his brother's throat. So his faith is is not merely... um, His sacrifice is not merely defective. It's his faith that is defective. And that's John's point to us here. So righteousness and love are the DNA of every Christian. And when we act in righteousness and love, guess what? The world's response to us can be very surprising because the standard has been set. But we are to love regardless of the circumstances. Look at verses 14 and 15. John writes, we, w- we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love still abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If we will not love, the result is murder. Wow, really? Murder? That, isn't that a bit of a stretch, right? I mean, that's a pretty violent end to a person's thought processes. How is it that that can be murder? Well, God says to us, as a man thinks in his heart to to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. Jesus said, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Does that sound alarming? It should. Because John's point to us this morning is persistent, unrepentant, unresolved, inner resentment and anger reveals who our true daddy is. It condemns us to the same condemnation he deserves, hell. So John, is, he, just, he wants it to be so clear for us, to make sure that we are affirmed in our faith, to make sure that we know that we're a Christian, that we will have confidence when Christ comes again. So he lays it out, and he says there is a solution. In fact, Jesus gives it to us in Matthew chapter 5, same section about judgment and loving and hating. He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, you've come to church, you're ready to worship, and you there remember... Oh, my brother has something against me. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You notice how the reconciliation is always face-to-face and it's seeking to make it right. And that's the only cure. And so John wraps up this section in verses 16 through 18. He says, so what does the love look like? We've been talking about the importance of it. It's part of the DNA of God. It marks us as a true Christian. What does that look like? It looks like this. It's the cross. Look at verses 16 and 18. By this we know love. I'm so glad that he pauses and he says, let me tell you what love looks like. This is how we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So he says you can know something about your love. It's very tangible. It's the example of Jesus on the cross. So are you willing to die for your brother? John 3.16. Think about it for a second. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So in John 3.16, he says, here's the sacrifice of how you and anyone in the world can be made right with God. John 3.16. And then in 1 John 3.16, he says, here's how you do that. Jesus laid down his life for us. You ought also to lay down your life for your brothers. So there's an oughtness to this. There's a mandate to this. We have a moral imperative to sacrifice my life for the sake of other Christians in the same way Jesus did it for us. If you look at the Greek description of this section, there's a guy who has, uh, his name is Wiest. He does word studies. Let me read to you what he says. The preciousness of each member of the human race to the heart of God is the constituent element of the love that he gave his son to die on the cross. It is a love that is willing to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of a brother, a love that, that causes one to be long-suffering toward them, a love that makes one treat others kindly, a love that so causes one to rejoice in the welfare of another that there is no room for envy in the heart. It's a love that's not jealous. It's a love that... Keeps one from boasting of oneself, a love that keeps one from bearing one's self in a lofty manner, a love that keeps one from acting unbecomingly, a love that keeps one from seeking one's own rights, a love that keeps one from becoming angry, a love that does not accuse others of evil, a love that does not rejoice in sin but in the truth, a love that bears up against all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the kind of love which God says one Christian should have for another. So there's this oughtness about it, but there's also this commonness to it. So, folks, if we lived in Nigeria, do you realize that 70% of the um, persecuted Christians today are in Nigeria? Those who are slaughtered and killed for their faith. But there's other countries. There's East Indonesia, there's India, there's China, there's Kenya, and a host of other nations where the blood of Christians is spilled on a daily basis. And if you lived in those countries, if we were there, We might have the opportunity to die for a fellow Christian, but here in America, it hasn't happened yet. Yet. But there's more to this. There's a commonness to it. Three things, and write these down, because this is what marks love among us. He says, If anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So here's the three things. What do we have? What do we see? And what do we feel? What do we have? What do we see? And what do we feel? So let's think about that. How many of you here this morning have those? How do I have these? So what do you have? He says, do you have the world's goods? That's the basics of life. Food, clothing, shelter. You're all dressed. Thank God, right? So I know you have clothing, We all look pretty well-fed, right? I had a great breakfast, my wife took care of that for me. I'm not starving, probably none of us here are actually starving, so we have food. And how many of us slept on the street last night? And by the way, if you did, I would love to talk to you, we want to help. So we qualify in the first count of love of what we have, we have the world's goods. Number two, if you see a brother or sister in need, now this is an interesting word because it's not just the casual glance. This is what a gluten-free, dairy-free person does when they go shopping. They carefully examine every package. Man, is there stuff in there I can't have? Some of my family members are in that category. And when I go shopping, which I hardly ever do, my wife and daughters take care of that, I have to look carefully, right? This word means to have a thorough examination, to scrutinize, to look at the details up close, to be intimately aware of. So what he's saying is if you have the world's goods and you see a brother or sister, how do we do that? Well, you have to be in close proximity. You have to be in a home group or you have to be in a young adults group or HSM or MSM. Um, You have to be involved in a service opportunity. After worship, you need to have time together. This is face-to-face. Do we have that kind of knowledge of the believers in our church? That's what's required if you see a brother in need. And then he says... How do you feel about that? Do you open up your heart and you say, brother, sister, I want to help. This is Acts chapter 2, right? As they give of their own possessions. This is what was going on. Or do we shut and lock the door? This is the Greek word literally for slamming and locking. It's what we do when we feel like somebody's trying to get into our home. We just close the door hard. And John says, if we have the world's goods... And we are in intimate relationship with another Christian and see a need, and we do nothing. How is the DNA of God in us? How can we be a follower of Jesus? Let me end with this quote. John Simeon says, "The Apostle John has a penchant for applying practical tests of the validity of one's faith, faith. How can we know whether we would sacrifice our life for a brother or sister? Well, we can know by being compassionate toward them in their present need. If we are unable or unwilling to sacrifice material material advantage for the sake of our brother or sister, we know the love of God is not in us. So John says this is how we can know. We can absolutely love each other well because there's an oughtness to it, but there is a commonness to it. And as God's DNA in us, that seed which gets planted and produces the character of God, It becomes practical. And I meet a Christian and I go, gosh, I want to help you. Oh, there's the presence of God. So may God help us make Trinity Church more and more a place of this kind of love. And may God help us to make our world more and more a place of righteousness and love as we express it. And don't be surprised if the world pushes back. Let's take a minute and pray. Heavenly Father, as as I prayed at the beginning of this message, this, this passage has just been resonating in my thoughts. And, and I feel like I've got a ways to go to fulfill it fully, God. But I want to use this as a test in my life. I want to know that you have blessed me. Gosh, when, when we look at what we Americans have compared to the world, we are mega rich. Even the poorest of us have so much more. God, we have the world's goods. And it's important for us to see the needs of others. God, help us to connect with each other in more intimate ways. Father, if we're here this morning and we don't have a connection to others in this church, challenge us to be more connected, to be more open-eyed, more scrutinizing of others' lives of how can I help them? What can I do? And God, we know we can't meet all the need. Each one of us cannot do it all. But together, God, we can make a difference. And God, open our hearts. Unlock them. Help us to realize all that we have in our material goods comes straight from you. And you call us to be useful in it, in loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. So God, we thank you for John's challenge to us this morning. It's a little hard to hear at times, but God, it is truth, and we want to follow it. We ask you to help us do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I hope to see you at 4 o'clock. God bless you.